Last week and this week, we've been looking at uh, three chapters, 24, 25, 26, covering Paul's last few trials before he gets shipped off to Rome. Last week, I admitted that I'm pretty much a Philistine. Um, I confess that most of the time I only really read books at a very basic level. I'm a a plot-driven person. So I don't always notice little things like characters or or the kind of more subtle subtext that authors like Luke are constantly putting in there. Um, Whoops, and I've already lost my place in my notes. Very nice. Uh, for someone like me, then, getting towards the end of Acts and getting bogged down in these trials, this, this slow, non-action kind of stuff, it gets very tempting to just skip ahead, to look for the next bit of plot, the next miracle, the, the next interesting section. Um, luckily, I, I didn't compile this sermon series. That was Dan Steele, I think. So, so instead of moving straight to chapter 27, rather, we've had to do the work in 24 to 26, and ask, why is Luke bothering to record all these trials in so much detail? What's the point? Why in chapter 26 does he tell the same story again? That's Paul's conversion three times in the space of 17 chapters and acts. Luke's too organised a writer to organise the historian, to just blather away randomly. And he doesn't normally just repeat himself. Presumably he's trying to emphasise something for us. Last week I suggested that the reason was that he was writing on two levels. Firstly, there was his message to a Roman audience, essentially giving an apologetic for the Gospel, arguing that it's legal, it's acceptable for good Roman citizens. And by extension, I suggested that there's the same task to be done now in our culture as we try to identify the reasons why that many people around us would discard the gospel out of hand and and consider how to speak to those prejudices. And secondly, I think that Luke's holding Paul up to Christians as a model to follow, both by making clear parallels between Paul's trials and Christ's before him and by showing Paul's zeal for the gospel. The way that even when he's dragged before kings and authorities, his priority is to be a faithful witness, to show people what they need to know, to open up God's word to them and call them to new life. Even when there's no clear response, Luke records nothing in these chapters of anything of what happens next for his audience. I think in this section... Luke continues to build on those two messages. So I'm going to look at each of them again. Um, This time the emphasis is going to be much more on the second one than the first. What is going on with Paul? What's the thing that we're meant to imitate there? So first up, what is the message to a Roman audience here? I think Luke used Paul's trial by Felix and by Festus just before this to make the claim that there was nothing legally wrong with the gospel. Paul presented himself as a good Roman citizen, as a faithful Jew. He wants to say there's nothing inherently un-Roman wrong with Christianity. It's a set of ideas which a Roman citizen can safely entertain. But, so what? What would be the point in a Roman, considering this silly Nazarene way? This minority sect of a minority religion from a troublesome corner of the empire. I thought, 
It's a religion for Jews. Let's leave it to them. And it makes wild claims about miracles and resurrection. It doesn't sound very credible to me. In a similar way today, for us, Christianity is a set of ideas, in Britain at least, which is safe to entertain. It's acceptable legally and culturally to be a Christian. So, why bother? Who cares outside of us? What do your family and friends and neighbours and colleagues think of the gospel? My little nephew Toby chuckled wryly once when I said grace before a meal. Uncle Charlie, you don't need to be a Christian here. It's not church. A friend's mother told me she thought Christianity was fine. It was great for naive, weak-minded people who need a crutch to stand on. On Twitter, I follow a few eminent scientists and every morning there is a barrage of social commentary on just how absurdly irrelevant religion has become. What kind of right-thinking, rational person is even going to bother to engage with that? It might be legal, but it's for the Christians. Leave it to them. It's their absurd fairy story. And I think Paul's testimony, recorded here by Luke, goes to say no. The gospel's not madness. It's true and reasonable. And it's emphatically not just for Jews. It's a deliberate invitation for Jews and Gentiles and Romans, even modern-day Britons. So, after all the legal wrangling of previous chapters, Paul finally gets cut loose. He gives a, a full account of himself to people who can see this issue from more than one side. This guy, Agrippa, is Herod Agrippa II. Bernice is his sister, although there are rumours flying around that there's something more going on there. They were children of the family of Herod, who had been the Romans' vassal kings in the area for some time. So, they'd been raised largely in Rome, educated there, mixing with the imperial family. Agrippa had been too young when his father died to inherit the full kingdom. He'd been given a, a, a small kingdom to rule over. But he was still influential in the area. He was responsible for appointing some of the priesthood, He'd been heavily involved in financing building projects for the temple. He would be well aware of the Jewish religion, at least paying it lip service and probably practising. He'd know the Old Testament well. So he can examine Paul's message from both vantage points, Roman and Jew. See how Paul deliberately includes him here in verses 1 to 7. I know you're well acquainted with the customs and controversies, he says. In verse 5, I've conformed to the strictest sect of our religion. I'm a true Jew like you, Agrippa. Verses 6 and 7, it's because of what God promised our ancestors that I'm on trial. For the hope our twelve tribes are longing to see fulfilled. He's pointing out, Agrippa knows all about the Old Testament backstory. And in verse 8, given all that Agrippa knows, how is it beyond belief that the omnipotent Old Testament God could achieve resurrection? That's the idea that the, the leading Jewish Sadducees are rejecting. 
As Paul goes on, he describes his conversion in terms which fit in with prophetic language. It, it could be the, you know, the, the calling of Isaiah or Jeremiah almost. And the task Jesus gives him in verses 15 to 18 is full of echoes of Old Testament prophecy. He describes himself as faithful to that mission. And in verses 22 to 23, he says, look, God's helped me this far, Agrippa. You can see that. Surely you can see this isn't some crazy breakaway sense. This is genuine prophetic mission. Just like God worked powerfully before, he's doing it again. Paul's setting himself up as the continuation of what God began to do in Scripture. God's at work. What's beyond him? That's what he's saying to Agrippa. And so in verse 24, when Festus chimes in and wants to just dismiss this gospel as madness, you're off your head, Paul. Agrippa, the Romanized Jew, the bridge between the two cultures, doesn't join in. And so when Agrippa keeps quiet, he's essentially testifying to a Roman audience. Paul's looking authentic. He makes sense. Luke and Paul together are saying there is a clear reasoned justification for what we believe. It's not madness. It's not folly. It fits with Old Testament narrative. Don't discount it as folly. And along with that, they're very careful to dispel the idea that this is something for just one group of people. Paul really pushes that. The ancient hope of the twelve tribes of Israel finds its fulfilment as a risen Jesus sends witnesses out to the Gentiles. That's there in verses 17 and 18 and 20 and 23. Paul's mission was to open Gentile eyes, turn them from dark to light, from Satan to God, so even they could be sanctified and invited in. Don't you love the way, towards the end, in verse 28, Agrippa kind of cottons on to what's happening. And half mocking, half shocked. So what, are you trying to convert me? Paul says, no, not just you, Romanized Jew, but everyone here, from Jewish priests and servants, to the Roman governor, to any foreign officials who were there in court, to slaves from God knows where in the Roman Empire. It's for all of you. Romans, listen up. The gospel is not madness. It's rational. It's reasoned. It's a genuine message. And it's not something to leave just to the Jews. It's a genuine invitation to all nations. Take it seriously. Respond to it. How do those manifest today? What are the objections? How many people do you know who simply consider Christianity to be a fairy tale? It's just another naive myth. Disproved, irrational, discounted by sophisticated modern thought. Or do they think it's the right answer for Christians, but there are other answers for other people? More likely, do they just not care? Seeing no way in which they need our gospel. How do we speak to that? 
partly an answer is going to come in good character. Living a life which bears out the Spirit's work in us so that people are struck by differences and the fact that we care and repent and rejoice. I guess in some sense we've got a tougher audience than Paul did. Agrippa at least probably believed the Old Testament, so Paul just has to demonstrate that he's consistent with that. Our audience probably dismisses the whole Bible as myth. How do we convince them of the possibility of resurrection? I suppose we've got to bring them somehow into the presence of the miraculous. Jesus' character. That's where our conversations might centre. That's where things like the Mark drama might, might be great. Or obviously, again, maybe Christian living changed lives where they can see Jesus' character in repentant sinners. That's some of the answer. Some answers might, might be in clear language. Do we think through the way that we communicate? Words like sin faith and hell, what, what they really mean to the people around us outside of church. Are we communicating in subtly different languages? Are we clever about the way that we engage with modern culture? Some answers might lie there. But most obviously, we won't even begin to be able to challenge those attitudes or to communicate the coherent Bible story and it, its relevance today unless we're actually actively witnessing to our faith, unless we're deliberate evangelists, which is difficult. So secondly, what's the model to Christians here? I think it's Paul the Evangelist. In this final trial that Luke records, Paul doesn't even bother to address the charges against him. His defence to Agrippa is the authenticity of his calling. Ultimately, the Jewish priesthood has no right to oppose him. His authority, his message trumped theirs. But more than anything else here, he seems to be using this as an opportunity to witness, to communicate the invitation of the gospel to everyone there. You see, he, he essentially explains the gospel three times in quick succession. First in verses 17 and 18, he says what Jesus sent him to do, to open eyes and turn people from dark to light, from Satan to God, so that they can receive forgiveness and be sanctified. Then in verse 20, he says what he did in response to Jesus' sending, I preached that they should repent, turn to God and demonstrate repentance by their deeds. And then again in verses 22 to 23, he says what he's continuing to do, even there in that room testifying and teaching that the Messiah has suffered as the prophet said he would and brought the message of his life to his own life, sorry, to his own people and to the Gentiles. Clearly, Paul speaks urgently here and powerfully and from verse 29, prayerfully. And the core of what he's saying is Jesus has done something for these people listening to him so that they might become like Paul, penitent imitators of Christ. If you're listening to this and you're not sure of how you stand with church, this is what it's all about. Humbly turning to Jesus for answers and receiving from him infinitely more than we deserve. That's what Jesus longs to see because he loves us. That's where his heart is. And that's what Paul seems to long for 
So he's presented here, responding to Christ's calling. He's being obedient to his master by being an evangelist. One means the other. Now, evangelism is a difficult word, isn't it? It's almost a dirty word. You know, many of us are uncomfortable about it. Culturally around us, you know, it smacks of illiberalism and arrogance. It puts a lot of us immediately on the back foot as Christians because it's difficult and we're conscious of our failings. We get defensive. I'm sure there's a huge amount we could pull out of this chapter on it, but we won't have time. Just, just let me point out a few things. First, evangelism isn't about living a perfect example of holiness. It's not about being better than others. It's not arrogant like that. Do what we do because we're better. No, Paul's really honest, isn't he, about where he's come from. He was just like his current accusers. He, he lived in hatred of Jesus. He was guilty of rooting out and murdering Christ's followers. He describes himself elsewhere as the worst of sinners. Not without reason. But at the heart of Paul's witness is the fact that God has called even him to repentance and set his life on a new path. So evangelism is not about being an extrovert or a gifted speaker or even a nice guy. Thank you. I can do it. Right. It's about being changed, like Paul, by God, by his invitation. And being so joyful about that, that you're ready to admit the change to an audience. To share that invitation with people you meet. Another thing. Evangelism isn't about being inspirational and working out cool events or, or coming up with clever conversational gambits. You know, ways to bring chat round to the gospel. That's nice, it's useful, but it's not what's modelled here. Paul couches his whole defence here on the fact that Jesus gave him a job to do. And so, verse 19, he's obedient to it. And so whatever the situation we see Paul in, he's always using it for witness. Jesus is constantly on his lips. He's aware of his calling, and so he's obedient in every situation. By contrast, I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to, to label certain events as evangelistic opportunities. By contrast, then, 99% of my life is normal time, safe time, but disobedient. Connected to Paul's obedience there. The phrase that for me really stands out in this passage, that Luke puts in here and emphasises, but doesn't include in the other accounts of Paul's conversion, is in verse 14. Just look that up. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's in each of the accounts. But then, it's hard for you to get against the goats. That last bit was a common phrase at the time. 
if you were a farmer, you might use oxen for ploughing, for transportation. And oxen are big beasts, they're strong, but they're not overly bright or full of initiative. So a standard method of just getting them to do stuff and go where you want them was to have long wooden sticks, goads, sharp at one end, and you'd just gently prod the ox from behind, and Bob's your uncle will go in the right direction. But a surly ox, a grumpy beast, might well resent the gentle poking and kick backwards. And that's why the goads are long. Your farmer is nicely out of reach, and the ox's futile kicking is only serving to ram its legs onto sharp sticks, making the pain far worse. So why do you kick against the goads? Just follow God's guidance. I think we, we get an indication here that at the time of Paul's conversion, Jesus has already been at work in his life for some time. He's been persecuting Christians for months or years, and you don't really get that angry with God without some kind of prompt. Now, some commentators point out that Saul had been a prominent young Pharisee at the height of Jesus' ministry. He'd almost certainly heard Christ speak, or at the least got the gossip secondhand. He'd almost certainly been one of those who were so offended by the idea of righteousness bound up in this guy, claiming to be the Son of Man, rather than in obedience to the law, that they longed for and plotted for his death. How long has Saul been outraged by the gospel, kicking against those goats, resisting God's prompting, taking offence at it, scared of it, instead of penitently obedient? I'm guessing that, that Paul understood the long-term nature of evangelism from first-hand experience. It's not all about one opportunity or one conversation. And in chapter 24, we see him working on Felix for two years. And I found myself wondering, as I was thinking about this passage, is he targeting that phrase particularly at someone? Is it maybe in the audience, Herod Agrippa and Bernice? Now, their family has had a longer contact with the gospel and Christianity than anyone else there. Is God prompting them? In 25, verse 22, Agrippa has been made pretty curious about this Christian preacher. And with some reason... His grandpa, Herod the Great, had attempted to kill Christ as an infant because he didn't like the idea that the king of Jews was being born. Agrippa would have known that. His uncle, Herod Antipas, had arrested John the Baptist for speaking out against an incestuous marriage and then had been manipulated into executing John. The same uncle had been the one who had tried and mocked this Jesus, this guy at the heart of Paul's message. Agrippa would have known that. His father, Herod Agrippa I, had the Apostle James put to the sword in Acts 12, and shortly afterwards collapsed and was eaten by worms because he didn't honour God. Is that phrase, it's hard for you to kick against the goat, is that aimed at Agrippa? Someone else there? Saying, look, it's hard to resist God's prompting. Harder to resist than it is to follow him. 
Is it acknowledging evangelism doesn't come down to one person's testimony? It comes down to God prompting people over long periods of time, nudging them, even hurting them, into responding to the gospel, encountering Christ. And like Paul saying, who are you, Lord? It's hard for me to kick against the goats. There's, there's a sympathy to evangelism, isn't there? I wonder if that phrase is there for us. Saul, before the road to Damascus, had a pretty good life. He was ascending politically. He was going to be powerful. He was going to be a bigwig. He rejected God, rejected his prompting and his message. He rejected the mission and the task that God had for him. He rejected Jesus and killed his disciples. And in some sense, that was harder for Saul than being obedient to the calling bearing testimony to Christ's grace, even though that route took him to prison and death. What's it mean for us to kick against the goats? Do we sometimes resist callings and instruction that's there before us? I think there could be a lot of examples of that, couldn't there? But particularly in this context, How many of us are unwilling evangelists? How many of us cringe at the thought and shy away from speaking of the gospel, even with Christians, unless the conversation really hits us in the face? Are any of you guys adept at carefully testing opportunities for overt witness to see if it's from God at the right time? Maybe testing it so carefully that it's gone before we admit that it was the right point, and then, oh, oh well, next time. What are your reasons? Me? I know that I'm not good enough to be an evangelist. How can I profess Christianity to my family or friends, to people who see my flaws and know my past? Hypocrisy doesn't help the case, does it? I tell myself, maybe I'll speak up in new contexts, but in old contexts, I'll play the long game. Yeah. But check out Paul's credentials in 26, 9 to 11. He's no angel, is he? The whole point of the gospel is that Christ in his mercy offers new life to people who do not deserve it. If I'm a penitent sinner, that can only emphasise the power of Christ's grace. So I try this one instead. I'm not eloquent enough to be an evangelist. I can't speak on the fly. I have to plan. Other people have that set of gifts. I'm not, gift, I'm not gifted there. I'm gifted in other areas. Yeah. But remember what Jesus said in Luke 21, 12 to 15. When we're called before people to testify, and we will be, he'll give us the words we need. Because it's, it's not about how well I package the message. The point is to repent and obey Christ. Is to be changed. We're the message. Okay, so, so getting more difficult. I'm, I'm scared of the consequences of evangelism. The responses I'm going to get. Or the, the lack of response, the indifference. The, the worry I'll have about what people are going to say behind my back. 
the bit where I look like a bigoted fool or a hypocrite. And look at the response Paul gets from Festus in verse 24. You're a mentalist. Or the response he got when he reached Jerusalem and his own people tried to stone him. Or, or in Rome, when he gets there, imprisoned, finally executed. Why does he stand in front of that bullet? It's because he's confident of the calling he's got in Jesus. It's because he knows what happens to the people the Lord delights in. They get treated like him. And so he's eager to share those consequences with Jesus for the honour set before him. I can't be an evangelist because I just don't care enough. That's a good excuse. And that's the damning truth about my heart. But Paul here, held up for me to imitate, is shown lovingly reaching out, even to Agrippa, even to the Roman governor who thinks he's a nutcase, and the rest of the court gathered round to enjoy the spectacle of this performing monkey before a king. Do you need to pray with me for a change of heart? That we would care for and love those that God puts around us, because... That's the necessary response to knowing that Jesus has loved me. I've got to pray that I will be obedient like Paul to Christ's command to bear witness for him. I find, what what about this? I I can't be an evangelist. I I can't do this. I can't be bothering with this. It's too hard. I'm knackered or scared. I've got all the other worries of life and they weigh me down. Can't I just for a year or something be a selfish Christian for a while? Be one of the broken ones. Be be someone who gets support rather than taking risks. Can't I back away from it and find my feet? And weirdly, Jesus seems to say, look, it's harder to kick against the goats. To resist his call will leave regrets. And it'll stunt our growth. It'll shake our faith. Obedience will be difficult, even painful. Paul knows that. But it's what we're called to by a God who loves us and will carry us through. Two things then from Acts 25 and 26. The Gospel is not irrelevant madness. Luke's determined to communicate that to a Roman world. And We need to think through how we can make that clear to a modern world. A world that's so keen to just dismiss Jesus as an irrelevance. And and secondly, the the way that we're going to do that is by following Paul's example. Accepting this challenge to testify in and out of season. Whatever circumstance, the glorious grace that we receive in Christ. Christ.